James chapter 5. And last week, we looked at verses 10 and 11. Um, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Verse 11, you've heard the patience of Job and seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. All right, today we're going to look at verses 12 and 13, 14, see how far we get. Okay, so we've looked at patience with injustice, patience with God's timing. Uh, Today we're going to see patience with the use of the tongue. Verse number 12, but above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Now I have to pause there, nay, nay, I have to pause there, because my wife's youngest sister, her name is Renee, and when our kids are little and learning how to pronounce things, they always called her nay-nay. You know, so I have to slow it down and be distinct or I'm, you know, confusing myself, not confusing any of the rest of you. But the, the theme here, it was, this puzzled me just a touch, the first phrase here in the verse, but above all things. The idea there, of, you know, above all. <laughs> you know, why, why is that of a higher priority than um, verses you know, 8, 9, and 10, be patient, um, establish your hearts, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, grudge not, you know, look at the example of the prophets, remember the Lord's pitiful, but above all, um, use your tongue properly. It's interesting that it ties back in with the theme of the tongue from chapter 3 and other parts of James, but I think it's fair, a fair conclusion to draw from James and other places in the New Testament that Proper use of the tongue is evidence of spiritual maturity, right? You know, the, James said that a perfect man is able to bridle the whole body. You know, and if you can bridle the tongue, you can bridle the rest of it. And so I, I think that this uh, above all or this emphasis of priority here is kind of bringing it back to, you know, all of these things tie into that spiritual maturity and the faith and obedience to the Lord that would let me do this properly. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath. Now, if we just took the first phrase, swear not, you know, we could um, make a message on bad language. (laughs) But the rest of the phrase explains it. You know, swear not, neither by this, neither by this. And then you see the, the end part of that phrase, by any other oath. So the phrase here, swear not, means uh, to make an oath, to take an oath, or if you want the dictionary definition, to affirm the veracity of one's statement. I like that. Probably very few of the others of you in here like that kind of terminology. But um, what does that mean? What that means is you need outside confirmation that what you're saying is true. Right? So... You know, sometimes, you know, you, you've dealt with this, whether it was your siblings or your friends or co-workers or whatever. You know, there's some people that just don't have a, a guile-like bone in their body. If they say it, you know, you know it's the truth. And there's others that you're like, hmm. <laughs> you know, are they, are they te- is what they're saying straight up or do I need to evaluate this? Okay. 
Um, and, you know, it's one thing if you're you know, riddling somebody or teasing them or trying to make them think. I did that a lot with my children, trying to make them think and evaluate things. I'd make a statement that was kind of obviously uh, you know, contradictory. Hey, look, the sky's yellow. No, it's not. You know, you're right, okay? But, you know, there, if your word is worth so little that you require, you constantly require someone else's confirmation, then you got a problem, right? Now, the idea of to swear an oath, um, swear not neither by heaven nor by the earth nor by any other oath. Okay, this term of to swear or to take an oath in the scriptures, you know, it's um, you know it's fairly common. Um, if you want to, I'm going to look back at the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, for just a minute. You're welcome to turn there with me if you want. If not, I will read this for us, but. This very similar wording we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it's been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Now what was James's statement? Swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth. Well, that's almost exact wording here from Matthew chapter 5. Swear not by heaven, because it's God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is God's footstool. Neither by Jerusalem, the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. So that was an admonition of Christ in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it was later on um, expanded in uh, Matthew chapter 23 um, where he was rebuking the Pharisees for some of their you know, crazy ideas. But Matthew 23 verse 16, Woe unto you, you blind guides who say, Whosoever swear by the temple, it's nothing, but whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he's a debtor. <laughs> uh, verse 18, Whosoever shall swear by the altar, it's nothing, but whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. So, this was, had become a fairly common practice, amongst the Jews at least. Now, if someone, you've probably heard this expression, you know, but if someone says, I swear to God, this is true, what is meant by that? What do they mean? I, I, if they say, I swear to God, what, what is meant by that? Yeah, God's, God's a judge. Another way of saying that would be, as God is my witness, this is true, right? But that was a very common thing. Now, you, you, we might think of it as calling God as the judge and God as the witness. It was very common that they would swear by, you know, in, in that culture, they would swear by Baal, they would swear by, you know, Ashtoreth, whatever the gods were of the day. But the idea is this, you know, I swear by God that I'll do this, and the implied idea is, if I don't follow through, then God will judge me. If I don't keep it, then you know, may God judge me if I don't uh, honor my word. Okay? But the admonition of Scripture is very clear. Swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, 
neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay. So the casual, intemperate, or you know, flippant use of oaths is forbidden. Why? Because our word ought to be trustworthy. I mean, the old, the old um, culture in America was a man's word is his bond. You know, a handshake and a, a promise was binding. And if I could take it a step further, it was a shock and even a shame, an embarrassment, if someone gave their word like that and did not follow through. Now, fast forward to 2024. If someone makes a verbal promise, got a handshake, agreement on it, are you shocked when, you know, people in town, you know, people in general public life back out or don't honor that kind of agreement? Not today. In fact, just because you get a contract, does that mean it's actually going to happen? Any of you ever um, put an offer on a house? Had it accepted and then it fell through? Or you're trying to sell a house? And you get an offer on it and they back out of it for whatever reason? <laughs> you know, it just, it's not a done deal even when you get to closing and sign the papers. It's not a done deal until the check from the lawyer's escrow account deposits <laughs> in your account. You know, that's when it's actually going to happen, right? But what I'm saying is the culture in America has deteriorated to the point where you know, it, you, the, the common assumption is you can't trust anybody, right? Let's put, that in another, let's put that in another term. Advertisers always tell the truth and present the whole story. True or false? <laughs> of course, that's, that's crazy. But, you know, we're just, we just assume that people are not telling me the whole story. They're not telling me the truth. They're not, you know, they're not uh, following through. Uh, okay, what does it do to the testimony of a Christian if they have that same reputation? You know, well, that Don Scoville guy, you know, I, he's, he's taught at a, he, he taught music at a Christian college forever, and, you know, he, he goes to church, he's invited me to his church, but, you know, if he tells you something, you better get it in writing. Now, I use that because Doc Scoville is 100% the opposite of what I just said. That's not his reputation at all. But if that were his reputation, would that enhance his witness or would that detract from it? Okay, now, let's put it on the other side. If, and this is the way, I, this is the Doc Scoville that I know, if, if Doc says, I will do this for you, I will help you, I will be there. Like, should I get that in writing? No. If he said he'll be there, he'll be there. I'm not worried about it. Okay? What, would, what does that do to the witness and the testimony of a Christian. Does that, you know, improve it or hinder it? I mean, that kind of a reputation enhances a Christian's witness. That um, improves your uh, testimony for Christ and such. And that is what God wants from us. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. In other words, to be people, be a person of character that is truthful, that is reliable, that is trustworthy, that is honest. 
You know, if they said they'll do it, then I don't have to get it in writing. You know, they, they're trustworthy. Now, there is, you know, a, uh, an illusion in Scripture. Is it always bad? Okay? I don't think this is a prohibition you should never, under any circumstances, you know, make an oath um, or, you know, a vow. You know, Ecclesiastes says it's better not to vow. You know, and people, you hear people quote that, you know, kind of offhandedly sometimes. What Ecclesiastes says is better not to vow than to vow not to pay. That's the full quote. But uh, the idea is that a vow should be solemn and sacred. So, I mean, we have wedding vows. That's probably the most common way we use that term. They're good and they're appropriate and they are um, beneficial. But if you, uh, I'm going to turn back just a few pages to the left to Hebrews chapter 6, probably a familiar verse. Uh, if this immediate verse isn't familiar, the context will be. Hebrews 6, verse 13, When God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. So after he patiently endured, he received the promise. Verse 18, uh, excuse me, verse 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs the immutability of his promise confirmed it with an oath. Okay, so we have an example in Scripture where God confirmed with an oath, I swear by myself, because that's the highest authority to which he could appeal. Okay, so there are times when an affirmation is beneficial and important, but the a special affirmation, an oath, carries no benefit if every statement requires that. Okay? So in other words, a solemn oath is not special if it's used in every circumstance. Now, so if you go to court, you have to testify for something, you know, usually they swear in the witness. They make them pronounce an oath. You know, I swear that I will tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And for years in our country, you put your hand on the Bible to do that. In essence, visually, you're saying, you know, I, may the God of the Bible hold me to account. May he be my judge, you know, if I don't tell the truth. When public officers are sworn in, you know, that's very often the case. In the last 20 years, people have tried to you know, undermine, undercut that in our culture some. They get sworn in on a, you know, some other book, um, some other religious book or whatever. But even the Supreme Court of the United States, there's a Bible that has been, you know, held specifically for that use. And typically the Chief Justice swears in a new judge to the Supreme Court, you know, handle the Bible. But those ceremonies are not special if... You have to hand on the Bible, raise your hand, swear an oath that yes, if you loan me $5 so I can buy lunch today, I will pay you back tomorrow. You know, if it's required in that scenario, it's not special in a confirmation ceremony. So here, patience, trusting God, um, you know, demonstrating that endurance, whether it's in trials designed for growth or mistreatment by others, is evidenced by a mature and spiritual use of the tongue. Swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, and you see the warning at the end of the verse, lest you fall into condemnation. What is the condemnation? It would certainly be with other people if 
your reputation is one that your word can't be trusted, then you're held in condemnation in the eyes of others. Of course, God judges us for being untruthful as well. All right, so that is uh, patience with the use of the tongue. Now, uh, the next section, verses 13 through 18, is patience in prayer. Uh, Verse 13 and 14. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any married? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. It's interesting to me that there's a variety of circumstances here that are kind of like uh, opposite extremes of the possibilities. Afflicted, merry, sick. Okay, the word afflicted here has the idea of suffering hardship, of being in trouble, to suffer misfortune. This is more than, you know, uh, my team lost and I'm devastated. You know, this is more than, okay, you know, the birds got into my tomatoes before, um, you know, before I could get to them. This speaks of the same things that we talked about in the first part of James chapter 5. Maybe, you know, mistreatment, or maybe it is just trials that, like Job that are extreme and difficult. Um, but here, is any among you afflicted? It's the idea of enduring hardship, of being in trouble, of dealing with adverse situations. Is any among you afflicted? And then the next statement is, is any merry? That word was interesting to me because it's a combination of two words. And the main word here is a word that's used uh, in the New Testament. It's the, the root word there is almost always translated as wrath. It's like, wait a minute, how in the, what in the world does that have to do with Mary? But really, the, the basic meaning of the word here is an intense feeling expressed as a strong desire or a passionate expression. Is wrath and anger an expression of passion? A strong feeling inside? It is. Not usually a proper expression, but nonetheless, it is. So the the basic meaning of the word is an intense internal feeling. Negatively, it's anger or wrath. Positively, in this case, it's good feeling, if you will. So it is a sense of uh, an intense feeling of joy, happiness. It's translated basically, be of good cheer. Be merry. This same word, if I'm remembering correctly, I didn't write down the reference like I should have, but um, in the book of Acts, it's the story where uh, Paul was on his way to Rome and he was going to stand before um, the emperor and because he, he had appealed to Caesar. And he was on his way to Rome. Remember, they got to a harbor and... This was a uh, economy motel. This wasn't a luxury resort. <laughs> and uh, the centurion and the sailors, they're like, uh, we want to get a little further down the line. We don't want to stay in Motel 6. You know, we want to get over here to the Hilton. And Paul's like, uh, this is not a good idea. If you do this, you're, this we're, there's going to be much loss and destruction and all that. And the Bible says the word of the centurion overruled Paul. And so they set sail, and then they ended up in a storm. 
a hurricane is what we would call it today, and they lost everything, they threw everything overboard. And if you remember that story where they'd been lost at sea for nearly two weeks, and they, it says all hope that we should be saved was taken away, Paul stood up and he said, look, God appeared to me last night and said, you're going to stand before Caesar, and I have given you the lives of everybody on the ship. I think that means Paul had prayed for everybody, that God would spare the lives of everybody on the boat. And he said, look, God told me this, and we need to trust God, and here's what we're going to do. You know, God's going to save our lives. And apparently they were so sick and so scared they hadn't eaten anything. He's like, you need to eat something for your health. So, but in that statement, Paul said, you know, be of good cheer. Same word here as when it says, as any among you married. So to, to be encouraged, to be joyful, to have that intense feeling of satisfaction or happiness or delight. So you have the varied circumstances. You have affliction, you have being merry. And then in verse 14, um, you have the word sick. Okay, is any sick among you? The idea here of sickness is kind of a weakness or a debilitating condition. Um, it's not, you know, a, a fever that you deal with for a little while and it passes away. This is kind of like more the idea of a, a long-term uh, situation or a more uh, severe sickness. But you see, in each in each circumstance, whether it was um, sick, uh, affliction, delight, or you know, extreme sickness, the answer in every circumstance was prayer. That's kind of interesting. The, uh, the phrasing here in verse 13, let him pray. And then the end of the verse, let him sing psalms. And then in the first of verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church. Each one of those is an exhortation. It's actually a command. This is a style of phrasing that we don't use in English um, as a command. This really is a command. Let him pray. Let him sing psalms. Let him call for the elders of the church. So the answer in each circumstance was a form of prayer. Is any among you afflicted, distressed, hard times, difficulty, um, Hardship, let him pray. The idea here of you know, addressing your need to God. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So the, um, the idea there is prayer in the form of praise to the Lord. You know, some of the psalms were uh, requests for God's deliverance and God's help, but many of them were expressions of gratitude for what God had already done and praise to God for His character and, and His goodness and all of those things. Remember, it didn't just say let Him sing. Let him sing. It says let Him sing psalms. Why psalms specifically? What's the target audience for James? Remember back in chapter 1, James to the 12 tribes scattered abroad? Is target audience, first and foremost, was the Jewish people. The book of Psalms was the song book for, you know, centuries, for the tabernacle and later the temple. I mean, more than half the Psalms are attributed to David. Out of the 150, it's 70-something that are directly attributed to David. 
and others we think it's pretty likely David wrote it, but his name's not on it. Well, I mean, I say that just to give a time frame reference that a lot of those were written before the temple was ever built. Okay, so that that was the songbook for the public worship services in Israel was uh, the the book of Psalms. So here, when he's writing to Jewish people, he says, "If you're afflicted, pray. Direct your request to God." Is any merry and an intense feeling of joy or gratitude or relief or those kind of things? Let him sing psalms. Again, direct that prayer and praise to the God who is in charge of our circumstances. And, you know, I'm thankful that this command here, let him sing psalms, does not have a qualifier that you have to be able to sing as well as Don Scoville to sing. Okay, because I don't. I can sing, but I can always look at somebody else and say, well, I'm not as good a singer as so-and-so. We can all do that, but, you know, God accepts that from us regardless of skill level or proficiency. Verse 14, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. This word, um, sick, has the idea of to be uh, weary as well as being sick. It's only used three times in the New Testament. In Revelation 2, it's um, rendered as, you know, they fainted, like to be weary and to give out. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. So the idea of this term sick is the, um, the idea of, you know, I think an extended illness here. Okay, is any sick among you? It's the, a sickness that wears one down. I mean, with all of the, the sickness and the treatments, you know, Joe could give testimony to that, that even the treatments sap your body of strength at times, right? And there's just a weariness. I've watched it with loved ones. I've watched it with friends and, you know, in this room, all of you could put names and faces to what I'm saying. But there are times when an illness, the illness itself saps you of strength. And there are times when you just, you know, push through the treatments because they've told you if you do that there'll be light on the other end of the tunnel. And hopefully it's not a train. Um, but, you know, there are times when, you know, that, that whole process just brings you to that point of, you know, weariness. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, okay, to summon them. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay? I'm sorry, I mixed that up a little bit. The first sick in verse 14 is a debilitating illness. The second sick in verse 15 the prayer of faith shall save the sick. That's the, uh, that, also, that one has a little more emphasis on to be weary. I mixed up those two uses of the word sick. But it's interesting to me that in 14 and 15, it's two different words for sick. The first one is a, you know, an illness, a sickness, a, in times a debilitating illness. A little different word in verse 15, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, the one that's you know, to that point of weariness and exhaustion from the illness, the treatments, etc. But the prayer of faith shall save the sick. But is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. 
the leadership. Um, the, the term elder in our day sometimes is jumbled up a little bit. But First uh, Timothy says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. And those terms, the terms elder and pastor are used interchangeably in the New Testament. Refers to uh, the same office. Um, so the idea here, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The oil in Scripture very often is symbolic of who or what. Yeah, I see you mouthing it. You know, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, right? So I think the idea is, you know, um, acknowledging the involvement of the Spirit of God in the answering of prayers. And Romans teaches us that the Spirit of God makes intercession for us when we want to pray and don't know how to word it or we don't word it correctly. Um, but it says, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. So there's the acknowledgement of the Spirit of God. There's the acknowledgement of the Father and the Son there. The Lord shall raise him up. And the, the end of verse 15 is also interesting. If he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. All right. I think this allows for two different circumstances. One would be a scenario where maybe someone is sick and it is a result of you know, God bringing something on to get their attention, a chastening of some kind. That's one scenario. But I don't think this admonition and instruction is limited to that scenario, okay? Um, because it says the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Um, I do think there are occasions when, you know, we've prayed privately, we've, you know, asked for prayer in a you know, prayer meeting service at church, asked our friends, family, whatever, and sought prayer. You know, and there are occasions when sometimes maybe we take a special uh, emphasis to ask the Lord for healing. You remember uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said three times, I besought the Lord that he would take this thing away from me. There, I think it was Paul's daily prayer request, but there were some times when it became a special, you know, specific answer to prayer um, or a specific matter of prayer, almost like you know, fasting sometimes or other times of emphasis in prayer. But here, I think this procedure that's described is one of, you know, as far, as far as I know, I'm not sick because this is a judgment of God or, you know, anything like that, but I'm just asking the Lord if he would be willing to take this away from me. We know that sometimes the Lord did. And sometimes he, like Paul, he said, no, I'm not going to. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. But this, I think, is a special uh, emphasis of asking the Lord for relief, um, you know, a kind of above and beyond the other things that have been done. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Whose faith is that? I think it's both. I think it's the one who, that's sick, that's asking for relief. And I think that's, you know, faith on the, the part of, you know, the church as well, that if we pray for this, God will answer. Let me ask you this. When we take prayer requests and, you know, we have a, a printed prayer list and stuff, do we ever have prayer requests today for physical healing? Of course. I mean, 
in a lot of instances, that would be a larger section of the prayer list than maybe other circumstances. We still believe God can heal the sick. Um, and, but the idea here is when we're in affliction, oppression, difficulty, I pray to the Lord. When I'm Mary, I pray to the Lord and thank Him, praise Him. When I'm in a sickness, whether that's you know, a result of you know, my own doing or whether that's just um, a sickness that God's allowed for His own reasons, I can, again, take that to the Lord. And sometimes there is a special emphasis in prayer of uh, anointing him with oil. In the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. Now, I think this is very important. What does that phrase say? Who will raise him up? The Lord. I think that is a gross manipulation on the part of the faith healers today. Because the faith healers and the healers on TV will tell you this. God can heal you and you need to trust. And if you don't get healed, whose fault is it? It's yours because you didn't have enough faith. (laughs) They put it all back on the person. I mean, you've heard it over and over again. This isn't anything new. But if the faith healers truly had a gift, they would go to the nursing homes or they would go to the hospitals or they would go, you know, and actually find people that need help and help them because God had given them that gift. And then the way they pass off a failure or a lack of success is, well, you know, I've got the gift. If you don't get healed, it's your fault. No. Ultimately, that decision to heal or not to heal rests with who? The Lord. Okay? Just like we said the Lord's our judge and our witness uh, in, in um, you know, saying the truth or swearing an oath, God is the ultimate judge here. Yes, I want to do this, or no, I don't think that's best. But here, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I think that uh, circumstance, the the last phrase in verse 15, uh, leans towards if this was a matter of chastening, whether that's a matter of church discipline, or maybe a private matter, or whatever. If someone comes to the point of saying, I was wrong, I'm asking the Lord for forgiveness, God will forgive. But I don't think it's limited to that circumstance. I've read some that do think that that's the only instance where this passage would apply. I don't think that's the case. I do think that that is available to all believers today. But all of these aspects of prayer require patience, do they not? Do we tend to see our prayers answered instantly? Or in many cases, are those long-term down the road? They are. So we're out of time. We've got to quit there, and we will... 